This is a 980 CKNW podcast. It's been said, your health is your wealth. The benefits of great health cannot be overstated. Great health leads to a longer, happier life and even better relationships. Welcome to Nurse Talk, the Sunday Night Health Show, a show about health, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, relational, and yes, even sexual. I'm Maureen McGrath, a registered nurse, author of the book Sex and Health, Why One Can't Come Without the Other, blogger, clinician, TEDx speaker, and your resource to help start that conversation, answer your questions, and help you live life to the fullest. I have a passion for up-to-date and accurate health information to guide you so that the life you live is the best it can be. I make no innuendos, no judgments, and certainly no apologies, just fearless, straight-up nurse talk. I guarantee it will be illuminating, enlightening, and fun, so please stay with me. Please do put the kitties to bed as listener discretion is advised. We'll touch upon some sexual health information as well. Welcome to the program. Great to be here with you. It's always my pleasure to be here and educate you about a subject that I am passionate about. Tonight on the program, we have so much to cover. It's January, and many people start out the year with resolutions. And one of the most common resolutions is they're going to stop drinking. They're going to stop drinking maybe for the month of January or maybe for six months. Uh, You know, it depends. But addiction is a very common issue in our society. And many people don't even realize that they need that drink, that they may be addicted, that some of their behaviors are much like the person who has an addiction, lying, anger, mood issues, productivity issues, relationship issues. So one particular subject around addiction, and there are many different aspects of addiction, but one in particular, lapse versus relapse. What does it mean? What are some of the myths? If you actually take 10 steps forward on your sobriety pathway and one step backwards, does that mean you're a failure? I don't think so. So hopefully you'll stay with me and and listen to this very important subject. Since we're on January, you know, January is that uh, time of year that people are, you know, wanting to get their lives back in balance. They've had the chaos of Christmas and, and the holidays and company and gifts and wrapping and doing it all and trying to do it all and getting overwhelmed. And their resolution is, I'm going to get my life in balance. But can you actually have balance? Can your bills be paid when you're when your finances are done and your uh, and your car is clean and your house is clean, your children are doing well in school or or you're running your company incredibly well when you're you know managing your emotions can can life be in balance? Can your relationship be going incredibly well at the same time that your house is in perfect order and dinners are on the table in a timely fashion every night? So balance is difficult to achieve, but I am going to review how you can gain balance uh, in 2018 and uh, and some strategies to get your life in order and, and feel good about it and decrease the stress in your life and maybe help with some emotion regulation, perhaps. Uh, also, relationships are so important. And once again, it's a time of year we say, I'm going to actually work on my relationship. I might go to a therapist or I, I might actually get some counseling or I might speak to my husband or my wife or my partner or my lover about dealing with some of the unresolved conflict that we have in our relationship. Well, that's all well and good, and I certainly recommend that. Therapy is a gift you give to yourself. But there are also some morning habits that you and your partner, your lover, your husband, whomever, your wife, can engage in each day to start out that day so that you 
can get on a pathway of improving the bond, increasing the intimacy, and who knows what it might lead to. Uh, also have uh, some information about fertility and testosterone in a very common medication that you may or may not realize may impact fertility in men. Infertility is a heartbreak. Many couples suffer with this, and uh, it cannot be overstated. The, the disappointment, the, the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment, the, the finding out why. Uh, perhaps there's no reason why. Well, there's a new study out there that may actually give you a little bit more information as to the whys. And it's, a, it's ubiquitous. It's, it's a very common pain reliever. It's over-the-counter. And you may be popping it and not realizing the impact that it is having on your testosterone. So I'm going to actually review information about why testosterone levels are important in men and what, what's the importance, what can happen when your testosterone levels decrease at many different ages. And they actually start to decrease at about the age of 30, which may be a surprise to you. And, and it can be associated with vitality and, and um, something else that you might find surprising. Uh, you can email me anytime on the show, nursetalk at hotmail.com. And uh, I'm going to read some of your emails. And one in particular is about... Uh, from a gentleman who at age 47 has decided that he's finally going to deal with a sexual health dysfunction that he has been experiencing for a long time. Things are just happening a little too quickly. And uh, it's over before it's over, in other words. And he's finally he's decided to deal with it because it's impacting his relationship as it would. This is a very common sexual health dysfunction. Many, many men experience this, and, and it can be heartbreaking. It can lead to mixed messages, and it can lead to upset in relationships, and, um, and it can be dissatisfying for the partners in a relationship. And, and so I'm going to help you to navigate this very common sexual health dysfunction as well. And what I loved about this email is this gentleman also recognized that his wife was going through perimenopause, the years leading up to menopause, and he wanted to know how best to support her. So I'm going to review for you uh, perimenopause and uh, some of the symptoms, some of the symptoms that you may not realize are actually symptoms of menopause or perimenopause, the uh, years leading up to menopause, and the impact that estrogen, the hormone regulator of every organ in our bodies, from skin to eyes to heart to uh, every to bones, uh, it's the hormone regulator. And so when those estrogen receptors decrease, you can actually end up with some symptoms that may surprise you. So I'm going to be uh, talking about perimenopause and some of the things, some of the conservative measures that you can do to help you to live a uh, better quality of life. Um, and, and that's so important just to do some of the simple things, um, getting adequate sleep, for example, exercising. So those are so important in life. Uh, many women complain about getting a little thick around the middle, the muffin top. Well, um, if you're not getting sleep, that can actually be related to how you process carbohydrates. So I'm going to review some of that with you as a result of this wonderful email that I received. But also, I'm, I'm delighted to have on the program joining me an Olympic gold medalist. And you'll be surprised to know that when Samantha Arsenault, uh, her name at the time, got on the podium and received her gold medal, she didn't feel like enough, if you can believe it, a dream she'd worked on for eight years Actually, 10 years she worked on it since she was eight years old. And she finally reached that, but she felt like an imposter. She didn't feel good enough. And it took a trauma 18 years later in her life to 
break her open, which is not uncommon. It often takes that trauma to break open from what we uh, think we need to be and the narrative that we tell ourselves and, and the perfection that we believe we need to demonstrate in order to be loved. And so Samantha Arsenault Livingstone shares her beautiful story of, of success and loss and pain and recovery uh, tonight on the program. And, and now she's actually sharing her story so that she can empower other women and girls. And that is just so important. So it's great to have you here with me on the program tonight. Feel free to email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. Uh, love to answer your questions. And uh, and what's so great about receiving emails from you is that uh, many other people may suffer. They may suffer in silence. They may be embarrassed. They may be ashamed. So your email can actually help other people. And uh, there's no greater gift in life when we're helping others. It makes us feel better about ourselves. So thanks for being here with me on the program tonight. And uh, I look forward to hearing from you. I'm Maureen McGrath, and you're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath, hosting this program for you. It is my pleasure to be here with you, and uh, thank you so much for joining me. I talk a lot about uh, health, and you know what's related to health? Love, and your brain, and your body, and your responses. But you might wonder why. You get so excited when you meet somebody that you're attracted to at the beginning of the relationship. And, and for a while, maybe a couple of years, the excitement is elevated. You want to chat to them. You want to be with them. You can't get enough of them. You're so excited when you think about them. And all things are going great in the bedroom, if you will. And then maybe after 18 months, two years, could be as long as four years, things start to settle down. That might just be right around the time that you settle down, that you decide to settle down with somebody, and then life happens. But also something else might be happening in your brain that you may not be aware of. Let's start with life, though. Life starts to get away from us. We may buy a house or have a problem with jobs after we're married, or we may have a child right away, or, or a couple, maybe unexpected twins, who knows? Maybe a medical condition, a chronic illness may occur. And that can impact the intimacy you have with somebody. And But you may not realize that there is a hormone in your brain that is responsible for some of this, and that is the hormone of love called PEA. There are about six or seven hormones and neurotransmitters that are involved in the experience of love, but the hormone that is at the center of it all, the one that is the carrion, the nucleus is phenylethylthiamine, PEA. So it's just a pea-sized hormone, and that's the way you can remember it. This hormone occurs naturally in the brain and it acts as a natural amphetamine. So it speeds things up and it also helps to promote those feelings of infatuation that you have when you're first in love. As I said, you might stay up all night with somebody that you find attractive and, you know, it doesn't matter. You don't even get tired the next morning. It's so exciting. And when we start to fall in love, dopamine and norepinephrine levels also rise and these are the same uh, hormones that rise when you win a prize, for example, or even take drugs, or uh, you know, if you uh, 
use cocaine, which I do not advise, but those hormones are released when uh, with drug use as well. They also get released when you're frightened or angry. You've heard of that of that fight or flight response. So these hormones result in an infatuation and high dopamine levels lead to a feeling of addiction or obsession, while high norepinephrine levels result in an intense interaction with that, that giddiness that goes along with that, that love, that, uh, that attraction, that can't get enough feeling. The person feels aroused and, you know, edgy and there, you may have butterflies in your stomach, especially when you see them. I, I had a, uh, a gentleman in my clinical practice and, and he'd been married about 10 years and, and she had lost the love a bit, but you know what he never had. And he said, you know, if I go to pick her up at work or if I just see her stepping off the curb, he said, I still get those butterflies in my stomach. So it can happen for people. Uh, you know, sleep isn't as important. Many people lose weight and you have that narrow focus on that person. Some of your friends may say, you know, you're spending so much time with this person and they, they may feel left out, but this is all mating activity. And so it's very exciting. Those PEA hormone levels are also increased by high intensity activities like skydiving, for example, if you have the stomach for that, if you can tolerate that. Um, or also, it's often associated with eating large amounts of chocolate. So, uh, so go for it. <laughs> there's a there's a hormonal reason your your love life may improve if you eat chocolate. So that might be uh, a great gift to give to your your lover, your partner, your husband, your wife, your spouse, your whomever. Um, but also, just know that this is why uh, there's sort of a love or obsession or addiction happens when people use substances. So it's that very hormone and those, those neurotransmitters. MDA, MDMA, sorry, the uh, otherwise known as ecstasy, the street drug ecstasy is similar to PEA. MDMA or ecstasy dispels feelings of distrust, suspicion, and jealousy and replaces those with a general global sense of that universal love. People just feel like they're having just a love fest by themselves quite often. Um, And most of those recreational drugs that people engage in or use work in one or more of the same ways that love happens in the brain. So you can kind of get a better understanding of what's going on. And and people, you know, where I see it, where this comes into play in my clinical practice is that people will come in and they'll be like, you know, we went out for a year and then we got married and the sex was great. And then all of a sudden it's not as good as it was. And, and we, you know, it was, it seems to be, it was just after we had the baby. Well, the love is transferred sometimes to the baby or, but also responsibilities and more likely there's more responsibilities, more pressure. And, and so that's where the desire can decrease and, and fatigue also increases as well. But this hormone is definitely involved. So, you know, after you are, have that excitement phase and uh, the infatuation and then love becomes more committed or more serious, your serotonin levels fall and the feeling of love begins to feel like a bit like madness. Uh, so we feel uncomfortable and obsessed with the other when the other person isn't around. So it can lead to these feelings of jealousy. Um, but just being in the same space with them can be enough. So to avoid the negative feelings that come with the low serotonin, once it gets to a more serious level, we desire to spend all of our time with that other person. 
And um, so, you know, that for better or worse, you got to take that a little bit more seriously because after a certain period, which, as I said, is between 18 months to four years, if you're lucky, the body builds up a tolerance to the effects of PEA and the other hormones. The hormones don't deliver like they did before with the other person. So that's really what's happening in the brain. But the brain still produces endorphins on a longer term basis in association with that person we are with. So it's more of a committed love. And those endorphins leave you with a, a feeling of, of calmness and reduced anxiety. And, and it, it, it can, it's even been shown to decrease pain, which is really important. You know, and when people are together a long time or um, when there's a divorce or a spouse dies or a partner is away for an extended period of time, people may experience what's called separation anxiety. And this feeling is almost like a, a withdrawal, a withdrawal from the love drug, if you will. So you may have experienced that in your relationship. Um, and it may be hard to deal with those feelings, especially if you have a partner who goes away and then comes back, goes away and comes back. Oxytocin is the hormone produced by the pituitary gland, and it also plays a role in love. And so physical touching, that's why physical touching is so important because physical touching promotes higher levels of oxytocin. And so variations in the levels of hormones related to love are an opportunity for people to exercise maturity in relationships instead of relying on chemistry alone to do the work for them. So so touch is really important in relationships. Hugging, cuddling, not just cuddling though, that's a big complaint of a lot of people. She just wants to cuddle or, or a lot of women say, why can't we just cuddle? You know, sex is work. It takes energy. It takes physical activity, uh, but you've got to stay on it. But But staying close, touching, kissing goodbye in the morning is very important. Kissing goodnight at night, holding each other, uh, is is very important. Back rubs, massages, foot massages, all of that touch will keep you connected to your partner. But we go away from it in this busy life in which we lead. We touch the keyboard on the computer more than we touch our partners. We touch our iPhones more than we touch our partners. And and it's also, a, you know, dare I say at this point, it's important that you touch yourself. And I'll probably do a segment uh, on that in and of itself, because that uh, warrants its own segment, touching yourself, because that's important as well, self-love and, and knowing what feels good for you so that you can communicate that to your partner. But I also want to say, uh, before we wrap up this segment, is that uh, PEA, the love hormone, is also been documented to have severe cyclical highs and lows in some people, and it may create an up and down experience of excitement, interest, arousal, and obsession. So, you know, this is a very important thing. It's something to pay attention to and just be mindful of the next time you start a new relationship. I'm Maureen McGrath, and you're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. I'm Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thanks for being here with me. We're going to be talking about a little bit of a sensitive subject, SEX. Hopefully you put the children to bed. Um, but this could be a good education for them as well. This may be something that you want to impart on them when they are uh, age appropriate, when they have reached the age where they need to learn about this. And that could be sooner than you realize. It's an uncomfortable subject. Sex is for sure. And a lot of parents have issues talking with their own partners about 
sex, never mind with their children, because everybody can't really imagine their children having sex. And, you know, but you want that for for your children as they grow up into adults. You want them to have a healthy, intimate life. And uh, but it's best to start with yourself uh, having a good relationship yourself. So, you know, not all marriages last. I, I believe last I heard four out of 10 marriages end in divorce. And and so that may result in a new partner for you. And it can be a difficult uh, time or thing to talk about, talking about sex with a new partner. But but what if you had something that you weren't comfortable talking about at all? You didn't want to disclose to somebody. Recently, I was an expert witness in a divorce case in the States in the state of Georgia, it's notable that divorce is by jury trial. And uh, so there, it was a sexless marriage, and the gentleman had um, gone outside of the marriage because of the sexless marriage. It had been about two years. And, and so he engaged in sex with a woman outside of the relationship five times. And so that was going to play against him in the court of law. So my role was to go in, and, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in upcoming shows, but my role was to go in and explain the risks of a sexless marriage and, and also the definition of an affair and, and that type of thing. But this gentleman was really worried about one thing, and he hadn't even disclosed this to his lawyer. Understandably so, and, uh, but he disclosed it to me. And I'm, of course, keeping it anonymous. Um, uh, he had a fear because he had a sexually transmitted infection, and he didn't want anybody to find out. He didn't want this to come out in court. And, you know, miraculously, probably because they had practiced safe sex and and he, when he, he had herpes and he, you know, they didn't have sex when he had an outbreak and they were very careful over the... 15 years that they had been married, she did not actually have herpes herself, So, which was great. So I, I was able to, you know, not with 100% accuracy, but I said, I put his mind at ease somewhat, and I said, I doubt they, the other side will be bringing that up, in part because most people would assume that if he had a sexually transmitted infection, or if one partner in the relationship had a sexually transmitted infection, the other one must have it as well. And and so since she was looking to date and, and meet somebody new, she didn't even want that idea that, that somebody might think that. And so that was how it worked out at the end of the case. It, it, was, it had never been brought up. So, But that was a big worry for him. And then, of course, it's a big worry for him uh, going now into a new relationship. So the start of a new sexual relationship is really a good time to talk about safer sex. Whether you are dating or, or hooking up or beginning a new intimate relationship, you can plan for safer sex, and that's really important. So talking about safer sex beforehand, like outside of the bedroom, can make it easier to use protection in the heat of the moment. And so you don't really want the heat of the moment to come before... Uh, that sex talk, that conversation that you want to have about a very awkward subject, but it's definitely worth it. Uh, so bringing up safer sex may actually, in fact, open up other conversations such as what you like, what you enjoy sexually, and what types of protection you prefer to use. 
So if you're not used to talking about sex, uh, it can help to plan this out. This is when planning comes in very handy. And so there are certain ways that you, certain tips uh, to talk to partners about uh, safer sex. And so you can say things like, uh, do you want to uh, use a condom or shall we use one of mine? Kind of a thing. So, you know, in, in practicing those uh, conversations, those one-liners uh, can be beneficial for you. So you want to get tested uh, for sexually transmitted infections before you start dating. And this is, this is really going to take the romance out of things because it's not the sexiest subject. But talking about it demonstrates that you care about keeping each other healthy and some partners choose to get tested together. I kind of like that one because it, it is bonding a little bit. But also, you know, you get the reliable results there. You know, you're right there. You get the results at the same time. There's no fudging the results or no, you know, um, lying there. And with people meeting online all the time, you know, I'm not really sure 100% who you, can, who you can trust. And especially at the beginning of relationships, some, trust is something that is to be built. But if you cannot, you have had the heat of the moment and you cannot help yourselves and you start having sex before you have been tested, it's a good idea to use condoms until you get your test results. So uh, even if you've already started to have sex, um, you know what? It's still a good idea to get tested as well. Uh, So a lot of people assume, well, you know what? They come from this background. They have this kind of a job. They're this. They look okay. So they assume people don't have a sexually transmitted infection. But you actually can't tell if a person has a sexually transmitted infection just by how they look or act. Oftentimes, symptoms go unnoticed, and there are no symptoms. If somebody does have a rash or an outbreak or blisters or anything, that is a surefire sign do not um, engage in sex because it, the possibility of passing it on is is very high when there's an active infection. And, and like herpes, exacerbate, there are exacerbations and remissions of herpes. So the only way to know if somebody has an STI, and they may not even know, maybe the first time they discover this, so they have to get tested. And so if you're living with a sexually transmitted infection like HIV or herpes simplex or genital warts, you may be wondering if or when or how you should tell your partner. So maybe you know. So there are a few things you might want to think about. You know, have a, having a plan on when and how to tell them. You know, you don't want to spring it on them. Um, how, you know, you've got to talk about uh, protection. And how are you going to talk about protection? When's the best time to talk about it? What will your partner need to know about the specific sexually transmitted infection so that they can think about what kind of protection works for them? And, you know, is this going to turn into a a dating or long-term relationship? So, you know, this is a very important subject. A lot of us want to deny it. We want to just not really have that sex talk. We just want to, you know, heat at the moment and move on from there and and not talk about it. But but it's so important to talk about it with your partners. You want to pick a good time and place to talk about it. 
you, you know, I mean, maybe let's get STI testing together or, you know, I'm curious if you think that, you know, you need to be STI tested and maybe explain it a little bit or, um, you know, this can lead on to the some of the better subjects like uh, this is what I like during sex. Anyway, if you have any questions at all about it, email me nursetalk at hotmail.com. I am Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath, hosting this program for you. You probably had the chicken pox. Chances are, if you're an adult, you've had the chicken pox. But what about shingles? Have you heard of them? What do you know about them? Who's at risk? Should you get the vaccine? And what is neuropathic pain? With the fentanyl crisis upon us, it's important to understand those medical conditions that are associated with chronic pain, and shingles happens to be one of them. So there are uh, many misconceptions about shingles, people not sure what they really are, but if you've ever had the chicken pox, there's a good chance the virus for shingles is still at large in your body. It's the varicella zoster virus, and that can lay dormant in your body for decades, and it may cause you no symptoms whatsoever. So, but in some people, that virus wakes up for whatever reason. It may be stress, it may be they're sick with something else, it may be issues in their life, um, and it will travel along nerve fibers to the skin, and it results in a very distinctive painful rash called shingles. It often starts with a circular crop of kind of white bumps uh, somewhere on your torso. And so that can be the telltale sign. But the the actual shingles rash uh, is a very distinctive cluster of fluid-filled blisters. And it's often in a band around one side of your waistline. So it's on, it's li- typically on, on one side of you. And and the word shingles comes from the Latin word for belt. So that's, it sort of almost wraps around your uh, torso. And the next most common uh, location or area that you may find shingles is on one side of the forehead or around your eye. Um, but these shingle blisters can occur anywhere on your body. It can be on your head, it can be on your legs. And, uh, and so, you know, it may be fairly significant and very painful. And the First symptoms of shingles seem to appear one to five days before the rash. So you may have some early warning signs that you might think are are the flu or just you're not feeling that well, but um, for some reason. But you, the very first symptoms are itching and tingling, burning and pain, and it's kind of nondescript. And but uh, you might realize there's something kind of you know starting. I just feel a little bit uncomfortable. So. You may also get fever, chills, headache, or upset stomach. The, while the localized pain and the rash are the telltale signs of shingles, you may also, as I said, get that flu-like symptom feeling. So for a few days, you're, you're not feeling well, and you don't really know why. Um, so, you know, it's important to have somebody, uh, your physician, somebody take a look at uh, your rash because it, it could be something else. It could be poison ivy, if you, especially if you've been outdoors hiking, or it could be poison sumac or, you know, some other uh, rash. There are many rashes, but get somebody who's an expert in uh, understanding this and, and diagnosing it. And it's typically your, your healthcare provider, your nurse practitioner, your doctor. 
Um, or you might have a friend who's a nurse. Anyway, she might know too, or he might know. Uh, so what causes shingles? Well, I said the varicella zoster virus is the culprit behind shingles and chickenpox. Uh, so the first time someone's exposed to the virus, it leads to those itchy sores that are widespread all over the body. You've seen that classic picture of the kid with the thermometer in their mouth, and they are just covered in dots and spots. And the virus actually never goes away. It settles in your nerve cells and can be reactivated many years later, and that's what leads to shingles. We also call it herpes zoster, but it's not related to the virus that causes genital herpes. So it's not a sexually transmitted infection. Uh, So diagnosing, as I said, is very important. A a doctor can typically pretty much pick that up, uh, make your diagnosis as soon as they see it, Um, but uh, as soon as they see that shingles, and you want to go straight away to the doctor, uh, you know, if you feel you have shingles. It's very important because shingles can last about seven to 10 days. That's typically when they scab over and they'll be completely gone in about two weeks time. And in most healthy people, so if you don't have any immune function issues or um, other illnesses or you, you know, you're pretty healthy, the blisters will, leave, will not leave a scar and the pain and the itching will go away after a few weeks or as for some people, several months. But for people with weakened immune systems, and that can be the elderly, Uh, you may develop shingles, blisters that don't heal in a timely manner. You may have this post-herpetic neuralgia or uh, post-herpetic pain, neuropathic pain. Call it what you want. Uh, It hurts. It's painful. But anyone who's ever had chickenpox can can get shingles, but the risk increases with age. So people over the age of 60, if you're over the age of 60, you are 10 times more likely to get shingles than children under the age of 10. So other factors that may increase increase your risk if you're taking particular medications for cancer, if you've had long-term stress or trauma in your life, that's why it's so important to process your pain, your emotional pain, or if you've gone through a divorce or if you've lost uh, a loved one, if you're grieving, um, you know, it's so important to process that pain, talk to somebody, get some help. Therapy is a gift you give to yourself. You've heard me say that many times before. Um, If you're on steroid medications, that will uh, weaken your immune system quite often. And if you have an illness such as cancer or HIV, and about 25% of adults will develop shingles at some point and most are otherwise healthy. So that's important to know as well. Shingles is contagious, but not in the way you might think. Uh, It won't trigger an outbreak of shingles in another person, but it may cause chickenpox in somebody in a child, in somebody who hasn't had it. Um, so you want to be very careful to avoid pregnant women who have never had chickenpox or the varicella vaccine. Uh, so that's important as well. Um, as I mentioned, you can have this chronic pain um, months or even years afterward, and, it, and it's known as post-herpetic neuralgia. Uh, or there can be a chronic itch in the area. Um, and you know, this can impact your life. you it can lead to sleepless nights, weight loss, depression. Um, and so also if you have, um, shingles rash around your eyes or your forehead, it may lead to eye infections or temporary or permanent loss of vision. Uh, the, if it attacks the ears, the shingles rash attached to the ears, you may lose hearing or your, you may have balance problems. Um, and then in very, very rare cases, it can affect the brain 
or the spinal column. So be very careful and get treatment right away. There's no cure for shingles, but antiviral medications can put the brakes on a shingles attack. So, so it's important to go to your doctor and pro- get prompt, promptly treated because prompt treatment, early treatment, can make a case of shingles shorter and milder and actually reduce the risk of developing. You can almost cut it in half, your risk of developing post-herpetic neuralgia, and you don't want that. And so it's recommended that you start prescription antiviral drugs or medications at the first sign of a shingles rash. And some of them, those medications are, you've probably heard of them before, acyclovir, valacyclovir, or famcyclovir. So very, very important. Um, uh, and, and otherwise, you know, during the time that you have the itch or the pain, um, there's some over-the-counter things you can use. Anti-itch lotions or calamine lotion, for example, can relieve the itching and pain. Um, you know, you may talk to your doctor about other types of uh, ways to manage the pain. Um, and sometimes corticosteroids are prescribed. So you're taking some oatmeal baths, taking care of yourself, managing the stress in your life. Um, try placing a cool, damp washcloth on your rash, not when you're wearing calamine lotion or other creams. And that may help to speed things up and, and, um, and dry things up. Um, you know, stay active while you're recovering from shingles, but gentle exercise always is best. Uh, there is a shingles vaccine, and the Center for Disease Control recommends if you're over the age of 60 or if you're 60 and older, get that shingles vaccine. It's called Zostavax. And in a large clinical trial, this vaccine cut the risk of, of developing shingles in half and reduced the risk of post-herpetic neuralgia by 67%. The vaccine won't treat a current outbreak of shingles, but it can prevent future attacks. So if you've already had shingles, the FDA has approved, has approved Zostavax for people as young as 50. And that, of course, is in conjunction with your physician's recommendation. There are, of course, people who shouldn't get the vaccine if you're pregnant, if you have HIV, AIDS, or a weak immune system, if you're undergoing chemotherapy or radiation, or if you take immunosuppressive medications, or if you have a history of leukemia or lymphoma, or if you're allergic to gelatin, the antibiotic neomycin, or any ingredient in the vaccine. Anyway, so stay healthy. Uh, It's important to have this information. If you're over the age of 60, remember the CDC recommends you get the vaccine. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Well, it's January. Balance is important. It's a very common resolution. I'm going to get my life in balance. What does that mean for you? Well, it means different things to different people at different times. But a well-balanced life is essential for personal effectiveness, peace of mind, and to live your best life. So how do you do that? What if you are a single parent with a three or four children and you're working outside of the home? What if you're a retiree that is dealing with depression or, or taking care of a, a loved one? Uh, you are the primary caregiver and it's impacting your health because there's a great risk that it can impact your health. What if you are part of a couple and you're working both of you are working inside and outside of the home. You're trying to raise the kids and raise them well, and you are trying to get your finances in order. Maybe you're leveraged a little bit. Maybe you're overstrapped. Maybe you have relationship problems. Maybe your finances are paid, but there's no food in the fridge. Maybe your kids are having problems in school. Perhaps you didn't get that promotion. So we have to 
be able to live healthily, get adequate sleep, be able to deal with problems. If you're up at night thinking about problems that you're having or the next day or what you're going to do, your to-do list, you know, it may not be the most healthiest way to deal and have a well-balanced life. So we all have responsibilities. There's always something to do. There's always somebody to answer to. Somebody always wants a piece of you, or it's so it seems. But if we are able to reduce stress and manage a well-balanced life, you are at much less risk for physical or emotional health consequences. So it's important that you take care of and nurture yourself. So one way to do that is, well, one one thing I say to people is there's a reason that the airlines say to you, you know, should things go awry in the sky, put the oxygen mask on yourself first. Even if you have a child, put it on yourself first because you cannot be gasping for breath while you are trying to control a two-year-old and trying to get oxygen on them. So you've got to put the oxygen mask on yourself in life first. Remember, you can't accomplish anything if you're unhealthy. So getting plenty of rest, exercise, and eating properly is key. And so what I suggest for people to eat properly, and and many people gain weight, they let themselves go, they don't realize the impact that unhealthy foods has on their health. So I suggest a low glycemic index, high protein, low carbohydrate diet. About 30 minutes of walking a day will be very beneficial for your mood, get your neurotransmitters balanced as well, and will help you sleep at night. Go to bed at the same time every night, get up at the same time every day. But so many of us are burning the candle at both ends, and so that makes us crave carbs. When you're not getting adequate amounts of sleep, you process carbohydrates differently, and that's why people tend to gain weight. Their metabolism slows down, and so it's difficult to function adequately. And you might be able to get the, get away with this for a little while or when you're younger, but believe you me, things are going to catch up with you. Also, understand what your priorities are in life. Balance doesn't necessarily mean you've got to cram every single activity in possible or or putting your kids in every single program. You know, it might be nice to put them in one sports program, one arts program. You've got to examine your values and and re-examine your values. What's important to you? Decide what's important to you. If you're in a relationship, you know, decide that together and kind of you know, agree to disagree on certain things or to try things out. You can test things out and, and then also set your boundaries and and stay in that. Lately in my clinical practice, I've been seeing a lot of parents for some reason and, and they're having issues with sexual desire or sexual function. And, and what I'm finding is that these parents are depleted. It doesn't matter the age of the parent or the age of the children. They all have a whole host of different issues. So one example is a, a couple that have two children and one of the and they both work outside of the home and she happens to do a little bit more of the housework he cooks a little bit more but she cleans a whole lot more and that's not always the case but it is in this situation and the five-year-old continues to come into their bed at night wake them up at night not only does she do that but then she kicks so the mother wakes up in the middle of the night returns the child to the bed goes lies down and sleeps with the child and then the child starts kicking her so the mother is awakened again and she goes back into her bed and she's getting her sleep interrupted every single night and and this is a pattern of behavior and the the thing that was most striking to me was this couple actually said 
um, well, you know, we could actually maybe try to get her out of the bed, but this is, you know, we might look back on these times and think it was just so cute that she used to come in to our bed in the middle of the night. And I thought, if you don't put a stop to this, she's going to be 20 and coming into the bed in between the two of you. You're going to be having that conversation over her. So it's important that you realize you're not necessarily doing your children any favors when you don't set healthy limits and boundaries. That's one example. I have another couple in my clinical practice. The father struggles with addiction issues. and But it's kind of been the elephant in the living room. Nobody really says, you know, nobody really wants to ruffle the feathers. And uh, But the, the daughter, who is 21, is having issues with marijuana. She smokes marijuana every day. She has failed out of university. They are paying her rent. They're giving her a stipend. And, you know, she has absolutely, well, she's demotivated, likely, by the marijuana, which they said, and she's unmotivated to get a job because her parents are paying for her at the age of 21. Many people are on their own. And so parents feel like, well, something might happen. This couple has a fear that that she might die, that she might, you know, she's not going to. She's going to take care of herself. Uh, But she has to actually get a job, fend for herself, realize what life is about. And so you have to, if you want to raise good children, it actually upstanding citizens, kids that are independent, can rely on themselves. You actually have to set some limits and, and not spoil them. Otherwise, we're going to end up with an entirely entitled society. And you know what that does. Um, so you also want to make sure that, you know, what is right for the child. It's not about you, that it's about them. And sometimes you got to make the tough decisions with your kids. So take a look at that if that's affecting your relationship. And often it does. And sometimes kids play one parent against the other. And, and you know what? Parents need to be on the same page at every age. Also, you may want to create an efficient mindset. So that takes organization and planning ahead. And some people are better planners than others. But you know what? I find taking time at the beginning of each week to assess what needs to be done that week. If you need to make a to-do list, a planner, calendar for appointments, you know, there's so many apps now to keep you organized. And so that is really important. Take that time to clean your office or, or clean your house. Organize your schedule, pay your bills every time the same week, set it up, you know, so that's something that you need to do every single week. So a week doesn't go by in two and then a month and then the bill collectors are after you. Also, you know, keep your finances in in good order. You want to uh, know that you, you have to expect the unexpected. And so it's how you react to things. You know, it's, it's uh, a response versus a reaction. And that's what you want to work toward. So you need to learn to roll a little bit with the punches when something over which you have no control happens. And believe you me, of course, you know that that's going to happen. But you know what? You're, ho- you're a whole lot better prepared to deal with problems. If you've had a good night's sleep the night before, or if you've had a week of a good sleep, or you just sleep well, and you eat well, and you're energized, and you feel good about yourself, you can actually, you know, little things, if you're, if you're not living healthily, little things like getting stuck in traffic can actually lead to frustration. And that can actually increase your risk of having a car accident. Your emotions can cloud your decision-making process. I mean, your computer might crash just when you're giving a presentation. Of course, that's happened to me. Uh, and, you know, you've got to have plan B all the time. But you might have a big presentation to give at work, and then your child gets sick with chickenpox, and you can't find childcare. You know these are these are pimples on the face of life. Uh, these stuff happens, and so we all experience the unexpected. You just have to learn how to deal with this, um, and and maintaining a positive attitude, a positive mental attitude, is very important. And and 
beginning each day with the intention of making the best and the most of it. And, you know, what I recommend for everybody is to make your bed in the morning. You know why? You have a tough day. You come back at the end of a tough day, you can get into a made bed, and that's a whole lot nicer. And you've also at least completed one task that day. On those days that you feel like everything went wrong, making your bed went right. And there's nothing wrong with a little meditative practice just after you get out of bed, get up in the morning, 5, 10, 15 minutes of, of calm and helps your ability to deal with the day. And, you know, the day may not always go as planned, but it can go more smoothly if you also put it in perspective. And so part of living a well-balanced life is learning how to deal with adversity, unforeseen events, uncertainty. And it's, again, how you respond. Try not to react Try to also put it in perspective in terms of, is this a first world problem or is this uh, a really a major issue like a significant medical disorder? Anyway, so just kind of rethinking and, and looking at balance and knowing that you're going to have a few steps back in order to have several steps forward. I am Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. You know, I've always said when we share stories, especially as women, we empower women and girls. Sometimes you feel like you're alone on a path, like you feel like there's no magic inside of you. There's, you're not as good as somebody else, or you're not worthy, or you don't deserve something, a promotion, a, a husband, a, a child, or you know, a, a new job, or, or a vacation, or even a new outfit. Uh, it can be very, very simple. But, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from an American gold medalist. Uh, She's an Olympic athlete from the 2000 Olympics in Australia. She stood up on the podium and, you know, things weren't exactly as uh, her thoughts and feelings weren't exactly what you might think. And this has transformed her world. And what I love about Samantha Arsenault is that she has turned her time of what you may not realize was were tragic moments uh, into helping and inspiring other women, other women. So Samantha Arsenault is on the line with me right now, and she's going to share some of the work she does. Hello, Samantha. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks. How are you? <laughs> great. Great to be here. Uh, it's wonderful to have you. You do tremendous work. You help women find the magic inside and, and mm. you guide them and navigate them on a roadmap to deeper joy. Tell me just a little bit about uh, what led you to do this work. Oh, my goodness. So, yes, you the, the magic. That's it. That's everything. I had that quote, a, a quote on, up on my wall as a child that said, when we follow the magic and when we follow our dreams, we discover the magic inside of ourselves. And that magic is like our light that's burning in there. And I have been in the darkness. Um, and so that has what, that's what really transformed me and allowed me um, stepping back into the light. I also say it's falling underneath the rubble of my life when four years ago, my daughter, who was 12 months old at the time, had open heart surgery and her heart failed after. And that moment of being bedside and witnessing the doctors and nurses and entire cardiac floor save her life because she's doing fabulous now, um, really cracked me wide open. And finding my feet again after that moment and learning to live with PTSD, really, I had to draw on skills and the skill set that I had actually cultivated to get to the top of the podium. 
So there you've had the parallel. highest of highs being on the, mm. the podium oh, and the goodness. lowest yeah. of lows, nearly losing yeah. a child. There's no, nothing, yeah. likely nothing exactly. worse in life. No, I, the, one of the, I mean, the most brutal, brutal moment in my life and to be there and experience it um, because there was a moment we thought we actually did lose her. So taking that and learning, when you talked about the podium moment, that moment changed my life and it changed my life in a way that most people just wouldn't, they, it would, it's not logical. You see these moments on TV of these podium moments and these stories and you hear all the magic, right? You don't hear the other side of it. And that's the side I've been talking about sharing since having, to, you know, learned to cope with this PTSD because I struggled with perfection and I was buried under this perfectionist armor. And so having to cope, you know, when you get slammed with a trigger for anybody that struggled with trauma, you can't control it. So it, it shatters this illusion of control that if we just act a certain way, if we just get a promotion, if we just say the right thing or do the right thing, then we will find inner peace and happiness. If we just get to the top of that podium, then I'll be filled. I'll be whole. And what I realized through my recovery and healing and growing and the pain of the, of the trauma and the triggers is that we, you know, the power is in arriving already whole. So coming to the top of these podium moments, and they might not be at the Olympics, you know, that's it. And everybody has gold medal moments, though. So it's, it's this what the work that I do now is helping people get to the top of that podium, those gold medal moments arriving whole instead of expecting to become whole. And what are some of the things that you suggest women do, women who are suffering perhaps with an eating disorder or, or perfection or, or abuse or mm. any one of a number of adversities that can strike along the way? There's so many things. So I think that knowing you're not alone, I mean, you are not alone. To struggle is, is part of the human experience. And that in, 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 you know, above all, if that's just like one message that you are worthy without conditions and capable of doing hard things. And the hardest things sometimes are sitting with the pain that we're trying to run from because we don't, you know, you don't choose. It's not a choice like, oh, I'm going to go get this eating disorder and, and, you know, try to destroy my life. It's, you know, something underneath that that's causing this pain where you feel like, you know, maybe it's just an critic voice that's grown so big where you just, you just you don't want the pain to go away, so we try to numb, and we try to run. And so the hardest things, the hardest work sometimes is sitting with it. And I think in order to do that, we need, we need skills, right? We need a toolbox filled with skills. So I have worked with therapists and coaches. Those are like my number one <laughs> because sharing it and getting it out and being able to talk to someone that knows what to do and how to handle, you know, what to say and how to support you is it's life changing. And finding a tribe, you know, finding people that you can connect with who are in, you know, who share, who aren't afraid to share their truth. Exactly. And hold space for you to do the same thing. And and many women are embarrassed or ashamed to tell of the the real life that's going on inside of their home. Mm-hmm. They're embarrassed if they're being abused or if their partner is drinking or if their partner has lost their job or some mm-hmm. other or is treating the children poorly or the children are even failing in school. So oftentimes we don't share these stories because everybody's holding up this uh, mm-hmm. this picket fence of perfection. 
And and I advise people, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, share your story even with one or two people, confidants that you have. But mm-hmm. that sharing stories is so powerful. So how can you get? How do you encourage women to share their stories? I think so. You're, this is everything because if we, but we have to own our story first. So you have to stand in it, and you have to own the story. And so many times we we tell a story that's not real. There's no reality. Like mm-hmm. we we haven't reality checked it. It's run away. And so one of the stories I told myself for a very long time, which was fed in part by my temperament and in part by my by people close to me who who said things to me that kind of it com- it combined to form this belief that I had to win to, to earn love and I had to be perfect to be loved. And so if I fell short, then I wasn't worthy of love. And so I know we're getting really deep here, but if, if you, when you start to tell your story, so one of the most powerful, like everyday ways that I use this a, a strategy is even with my husband, it's like, wait a minute, the story I'm telling myself is that you left that pile of stuff on the stairs that you walk by because you don't care about me or you think it's my job. And that then saves this massive blowout and hold me holding on to resentment and me telling this story in my head over and over again because I'm telling myself that he doesn't care about me and he thinks it's my job and it's a woman's job to pick up the clothes on the stairs when the reality is he's like, wait a minute, I didn't even see him. Right. You know? <laughs> Typical. So no. we, we, <laughs> but then you're like, okay, well, that's not, so then you walk it down and you say, well, okay, well, like this is the silliest example, but it's everyday stuff. This is the stuff that adds up. So you, you say, okay, well, that's not going to work for me. So how are we going to get you to see that? <laughs> like, so what do we have to change here? Exactly. But then the conversation is grounded in reality and not in this, you know, so you're able to say, you know, if, if it's all a whole range of things in these experiences, but what our life experiences get filtered through our beliefs. So exactly. If you believe that you're not worthy of love unless you look a certain way or act a certain way, or you don't, you're not worthy of belonging because you have to be a certain way or act a certain way, then we feel like we're on the outside. That's right. And that's the narrative that you were telling yourself. And many women have a narrative that they're telling themselves and they put a shield up around them and they don't want to let anybody in. And right. and it can cause so much more grief and pain because we, you know, a lot of people, I think, feel that they have to be perfect or perceived as perfect to be accepted, to be loved, to be worthy, to be part of the neighborhood uh, as yeah. something as simple as that. So you do tremendous work. And um, I want people to be able to read a little bit more about you, learn a little bit more about you. So what is the best way? You'd also do speaking engagements. So what's the best way for people to get in touch with you, Samantha? The best way is samanthalivingstone.com. And that is, so it's, that, that's probably the easiest way. And also on social media as well. Perfect. Um, and Samantha <laughs> at I say. Samantha Livingstone is my email. Yeah. So I think, I just want to add one more thing to the narrative. Like when we're, when we're, when we allow ourselves to own where we are, in reality check our stories, then we get to take control and write the ending. And, and I think we get to step into that. Exactly. Yeah. And owning your story means telling yourself the truth. And oftentimes we don't do that. Samantha Arsenault, I cannot thank you enough. I really appreciate your coming on the program. It's samanthalivingstone.com. I am Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Much of the work that I do in my clinical practice is around sexless marriages. Many people come in after a number of years of marriage or after dealing with an issue or a crisis or a loss or infidelity that they have problems with sex or intimacy in their marriages. And 
people don't realize the importance or they may forget about the importance of intimacy in a relationship and why it's important to keep that connection, that bond, that love, that sensation, that excitement, that playfulness, that shaking it up in a relationship. And that's just as important as any other aspect of your relationship, like finances or the kids or your parents or your job or your career or even your iPhone. 10% of people check their iPhones during sex, if you can believe that. Um, according to research, and that's probably only going to get higher, that number. Many people go into bed with their iPhones or their computers and forget about their lover altogether. So that can that can really create a big barrier in the bedroom between you and your lover, and you really don't want that because one of the greatest risks of a sexless marriage is loneliness. And you might not think that somebody who's married is actually lonely, but many, many people come plain or report loneliness in a marriage. And it's not about being alone. So you're married. How can you be alone? You have five kids. How can you be alone? Many people are happy on their own, but it's not how many people you know or how, or how often you might see them or, or how busy your household is or, or just a bad day when you just don't feel like seeing anybody What matters is the connection you have, and that's so important to have a connection to your spouse, to your lover, to your partner, to whomever it is that you are walking this gravel road of life. Those who do have connections, strong connections with people, whether it be in the bedroom, in a relationship, intimacy, a friend with benefits, they tend to be happier, healthier, and even more productive. Those who don't may feel isolated, misunderstood, and it can even lead to depression. It actually can elevate, this loneliness can elevate your peripheral vascular resistance, and it may lead to hypertension, so high blood pressure, which places you at great risk for stroke. And so you don't want to end up having a stroke. You want to have the best life possible. And, you know, I I deal with so many patients in my clinical practice who perhaps their spouse has, you know, 15, 20 years ago made a mistake, had an indiscretion. I have one couple in my clinical practice where about 18 years ago, he was in a sexless marriage. They were in a sexless marriage together and he went outside of the marriage and he actually paid for sex. This isn't the only case I can tell you about, but he paid for sex 18 years ago, and she continues to hold that against him. And so they've, they were in a sexless marriage because she'd had twins about a year after they uh, got married, and they had twins, and she then went back to work fairly soon. They had a house to maintain. They were living outside of the country, so she didn't have any help from family. She, had, she did hire um, a nanny, but that was, you know, she was still exhausted. And, um, and so he actually paid for sex. And she found out about it because he had a false positive on a a sexually transmitted infection test. And uh, he had to tell her about it. And as it turned out, that was good news. But it, it still wasn't enough for them to prompt themselves to get help in the marriage at that time, which would have been really helpful. So it's fast forward, you know, 18, 20 years later, and they end up in my clinical practice because they saw that TEDx talk. And so she hasn't really gotten over the affair, what she calls an affair, but it's actually sex. It's a, it's a biological need that he 
required. And you know what? He's probably spoiled. He's probably, you know, if he's not going to get his own way, he's going to get it somehow. And, you know, there are some other issues that go along with that. Particular personalities might do that, might choose that as an option. But he was feeling loneliness in his marriage fairly early on. So it's very important. Uh, Somebody else in my clinical practice, they were married a long time. And about you know 25 or 30 years and the last five years of their marriage was sexless and so he paid for two happy ending massages and his wife found out about them uh, well had heard from somebody else and she confronted him and he told her the truth and so that was the end of the marriage and she felt betrayed. But, you know, if you look at it a little bit of a different way, I reframe it for people. The betrayal begins before the infidelity or the indiscretion, if you will, because not paying attention to the intimate aspect of your relationship is also betrayal. Is it fair to impose fidelity on a person who is deprived of sex from their spouse? And when that spouse has an affair, must we call it cheating or is it merely survival. I'm going to review some of the reasons it's extremely important that you pay attention to the intimacy in your marriage. And if you've gone longer than, and if you if you have a medical illness or if you don't want to have sex, if both of you don't want to have sex, it's no problem. This is about the couples who have desired discrepancy. And of course, nobody's going to be equally uh, desirous of one another at the same time. Everybody has different life circumstances. So, But if the desired discrepancy is so wide, or you're having sex less than, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 times a year, maybe less than 60 times a year. You know, it could be a sign of trouble. If you're having sex less than 10 times a year, it's definitely a sign of trouble and it can lead to loneliness. And so if you're lonely for a long time, it may make it harder for your body to fight fight sickness. So you may actually have an impact, a negative impact on your immune system. So it may become weak because loneliness triggers some of the hormones your body makes when you're under stress. And so that can actually weaken your immune system. So Make, it makes you sicker. So is your guy getting a lot of man colds? <laughs> well, look no further than your own self. It may be because your sex life is dwindling. Also, as I mentioned, blood pressure. Um, if your loneliness that lasts longer than four years, apparently, according to research, your blood pressure is more likely to go up. You know, it's difficult to prove that loneliness is to blame, but they do find that uh, a rise in peripheral vascular resistance uh as a contributing factor to this. Of course, take into account all the other factors, your history, your diet, your exercise. Um, And speaking of exercise, an active lifestyle helps keep you well in body and mind. You feel so much greater. You know, like recently I, I wasn't exercising. For some reason, I lost three days of exercise in a row. And I was, I could feel it just starting. Like I wasn't feeling as well. Got out there, went for a hike, felt fantastic right afterward. The effects occur fairly quickly. But when you're lonely, you're more likely to cut back on your workouts or stop them all together. So stay in the game, walk with a friend, go to the gym, play a game of uh, dodgeball or whatever, get involved in something. Gyms have basketball games going on, there's hockey, there's everything. So when you're lonely, you're also not as sharp. Your mental acuity may go down, your cognitive function may decline. And so you may also be at greater risk for diseases like Alzheimer's. So there's a lot of things that affect these risks, but it's not just loneliness, but keep in mind loneliness can be a contributing 
factor. And as people age, it's so much better to stay connected. And also, you know, when you're lonely, you might get depressed, you might get down. And so you're more likely to light up. And so especially if you've been a smoker in the past. So keep that in mind as well. And it can contribute to poor heart health. The more loneliness you've had over your life, the more you're likely to have conditions that affect your heart health, like obesity, hypertension, bad cholesterol levels. And women who are lonely are more likely to get coronary heart disease because if you like, if you get smoke, like if you smoke, uh, get depressed or don't work out when you're lonely and heart disease is the number one killer of women. So it's important that you uh, look after that. But I want to say as well that, you know, just because you're not in a relationship doesn't mean that you're depressed or, um, you know, you can have a full life and a, and a very bountiful life. So just keep that in mind. If you are in a relationship, sex is important. It's a conversation you need to have with your partner. You don't want to gain weight. And that's another risk. I'm Maureen McGrath. And you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Great to be here with you this evening. Uh, you know, I'm going to be talking about a very hot topic next. and uh, But a, a topic that's also extremely hurtful and very painful. This is a subject that is a whole lot easier for people to do. But it's also a whole lot easier for people to get caught. And that's the cheater. Cheating in relationships. I see a lot of people in my clinical practice who have uh, cheated, actually. And most of them will say to me, or if not all, I am not the cheating kind. I never thought I would cheat, but the baseball coach came along and threw me up against the wall. Or, or I met this man who was working on my house, and I just felt I'd never felt this way. Or I've always been the good girl. And and everybody expected certain things of me and or I just wanted to find out if I was sexually normal. And, you know, at age 43, I didn't realize that I didn't really know that. So there are a number of things people say about their cheating. But what really compels a person to cheat? Um, you know, I, I had in my clinical practice one time uh, about four or five women came in one after the other, it seemed, and they were like, I'm a teacher, I'm 40, I have three kids, I had an affair, I like to ski. We're like, can we just back up to that affair thing? And it was as though it was a side trip of their life. Uh, they s- remained in their marriages, nobody ever found out, and they were happy that their marriages continued. But they had something to fulfill, something to find out, something to learn about themselves. And it's generally something about one's own self that whether it be a need not being met or whether expectations of other people or whether they're just bored or somebody came along as a surprise. And so the reality is people will cheat, as I said, for a number of reasons. And I, you know, cannot tell you the, you know, all of the reasons in in this radio show. Um, But there was a new study that was published in the Journal of Sex Research, and it did delineate the biggest reasons why people are unfaithful. Researchers conducted a a survey of close to 500 adults with an average age of 20. So they were young, but they were asked if they've ever cheated in a relationship, and if so, what their motivation for doing it was. And so the survey was pretty open-ended, and the researchers collected the responses in terms of their relationship to one another. Uh, to find out that there were 
get this, 77 motivations for infidelity. So the number one reason as to why people cheat was a lack of love. It's very interesting. They may still be loved. They may just not feel that they are loved because what is it that you associate with love? What demonstrates love for you? Uh, 77% of the responses either explicitly stated I had fallen out of love with my primary partner or alluded to it in some way. And that's the guttural reaction to being cheated on uh, often is that the person cheating fell out of love. But the more accurate reasoning is that the person cheating no longer feels love by his or her partner. That's very different. And that was you know, uh, demonstrated in this research. So a lack of love could mean many things. Person is not, um, you know, having sex with their partner. And I hear this all the time in my clinical practice. You know, people will come in, couples will come in. And, you know, one of the more common things is men will say, you know, she never initiates. I always have to initiate. You know, to be honest with you, I mean, that, that just might be your lot in life, guys. <laughs> um, so don't, don't hang your hat on that. Uh, don't, don't lose your battle on that hill. Um, so, you know, sometimes women typically don't initiate. But by the same token, ladies, it might be a nice idea if you're in a heterosexual relationship or even in a same-sex relationship. If you're the one that doesn't initiate, you know what? It might be worth a try trying that. But that, one, that one's a tough one, I have to say. So uh, many... Couples, they they may not have had sex for two years, three years, five years. These are couples in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Anyway, there's no discrimination against age on this. So it's couples of all ages. And oftentimes I will say to patients uh, of mine, um, especially to the woman, you know, if they're in a sexless marriage, uh, there are risks to a sexless marriage. Chronic masturbation, a lot of women don't realize that their husbands masturbate, but it's healthy. Uh, Pornography, so looking at pornography, that's very upsetting for a lot of women. Women also don't think that their male husbands, partners look at pornography. Also, women look at pornography as well. Um, And also infidelity. And so I asked the question to the heterosexual couples where the woman has low sexual desire, what if he cheated, I say, If he cheated, I'd kill him, is the common response from women in sexless marriages with men. And so, again, how fair is that? So these women will say, no, I love him. I want to stay in the marriage. I just don't want to have sex with him. And they just get out of the habit. They don't realize the importance. They are too tired. They don't like their stomach. They feel body image issues. So there are a number of reasons. Love is a verb. It's an action. It's a skill. It is dynamic. It is meant to be a dynamic process of doing, of action, rather than just something that you're in. That's the thing. Love needs to be nurtured, replenished, and you can't take it for granted. And when somebody doesn't feel love, I mean, you know, we're, we're almost hateful to the cheaters. I had a uh, patient in my clinical practice who hung a banner on her front door of her husband who had cheated. And I don't want to just talk about male cheaters because women cheat too, and it's just as hurtful. But women cheat because men 
in their lives quite often don't want to have sex with them. And it's devastating because the social acceptance is all men want to have sex. So if you don't want to have sex with me, you know, what kind of a woman am I? I'm not feminine enough. I'm not sexual enough. I'm not sensual enough for you. I'm not good enough. And so women will cheat as well. So love is an action. And so feeling a lack of love in the relationship, that's the biggest motivator to cheat. Uh, you know, you've got to really think about it. There, Those are not the only ones. Um, many people wanted a variety of sex partners. Uh, the, that feeling of neglect in a relationship or being neglected. There can be a situational reason, like you had too much to drink um, or weren't thinking clearly that day or, uh, you know, just you'd been sort of attracted to somebody at work and you just couldn't help yourself. The temptation was far too great. They saw the vulnerability in you and and you went for it. Many people don't feel great about themselves that are walking on this earth. And so this is one way to build your self-esteem because what better way than somebody thinks you're hot, somebody thinks you're attractive, somebody finds you attractive. Even if it's a picture online, it's like, hey, I thought it was over. You know, I still got it. Um, and so to build your self-esteem, and it's, it's a big motivator. And that was 57% of the people in this study. People subconsciously often or unconsciously or consciously feel insecure. And they use the seduction and conquest of an extramarital affair to feel good about themselves. And, uh, you know, so uh, that can be reasons why it's good to uh, feel good about yourself and, and help your partner to feel good about themselves because they may actually um, go outside of the relationship. Here's another one that I found interesting. 43% said that, that being angry at their partner was the biggest motivator. And, you know, revenge, I think revenge cheating falls into that. If you've been cheated on, you're more likely to even the playing field, even the score there. Um, also, you know, emotional disconnection in a relationship. 41% said they felt unattached to their partner. And that was why they cheated. So they didn't feel that commitment that is so important. And Surprisingly enough, about a third of people said they cheated for no other reason than the fact that they just wanted to have sex. In general, the study found men were likely to cheat for variety, the sex, and situational reasons, while women were more likely to cheat because they felt ignored or neglected. Of course, personality types plays a role in this, and you know, there are certain personalities that will cheat. Even if you think you're not a cheater, there are personalities that will. So, Anyway, that's a wrap for the Sunday Night Health Show. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at Back the Number Two, The Bedroom. Visit my website, backtothebedroom.ca, or go to my blog, Fifty Shades of Pink. You can always listen on iTunes, where it's a free download if you missed a part of the program or you want to hear it again. So remember, when you stumble on this gravel road of life, make it part of your dance. I'm Maureen McGrath, and you've been listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.